1: It is very hard to do a brief introduction for Timothy B. Schmidt, singer, songwriter, bassist for Poco and the Eagles. He's worked for decades as a session musician and solo artist. He's played and recorded with everybody from Steely Dan to Crosby, Stills and Nash to Bob Seger. He toured with Jimmy Buffett, toured with Rigo, And the solo albums keep getting lovelier. If you liked Expando or Leap of Faith, you've Got to have his gorgeous 2022 release, Day by Day, which features guests like Jackson Brown, Lindsay Buckingham, John Fogerty, Ben Monttench, Kenny Wayne Shepard, and his own daughter, Jedra. I'm really happy to have a few minutes with Timothy before he's swept up by another Eagles tour. Please welcome Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Kennedy Center honoree, and I think the only member of the Eagles who's actually a native of California, uh, Timothy
2: B. Schmidt. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I am. I'm the only native.
1: Well, I was thinking of that because uh, we're recording this in the morning in L.A., and we just had an earthquake last night by the the water. Did you feel it?
2: I did. I'm a pretty light sleeper, and it... Bounced me right up there.
1: Yeah, me too. It woke me up. (laughs) Welcome home. You know, I am excited about the Eagles tour, but I I really hope it's okay that I want to talk about the Day by Day record first.
2: It's more than fun. It's so gorgeous. It's well,
1: good. It's it's so gorgeous. And I'm almost sorry we have to talk about the Eagles because I just love this record so much. Was this a COVID project? Were these songs things that came together during lockdown?
2: Uh, A lot of it. I'd say about half. So my studio is on, on my property, but we were during covid as well as just before it and quite a bit after we were remodeling our house so i was actually packing my things and driving to work to the studio every day because we didn't remodel that and uh and i didn't have had no zero distractions you yeah. know, we couldn't go out to dinner had to take my lunch with me you know and so i i decided to use it to my artistic advantage hopefully and I even, even though I swore I wasn't going to do it to write a COVID song, I ended up kind of having that as, as a theme, but, uh, it's, it's a little bit masked. Which one is the COVID song? It's called The Next Rainbow. Of course. So yeah, my world is getting small, but it don't bother me. That's how it starts. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was really happy to just go to work, um, every day. Well, I, I, I love what I do anyway. But I was happy during that time that I had something to do that I could actually concentrate on that. Usually I do my writing and recording for my own stuff in between the cracks of Eagles activity. Of course. Because the Eagles is allows me to do that, you yeah. know. It's like I don't depend on my solo stuff. I do it for my own sanity and my own uh, whimsical whatevers, you know.
1: I mean, I admire how you guys do it. I always thought if the Beatles had just kept on touring together and releasing solo records, who knows how long they could have stayed together. I think it's a beautiful way to go from your own work back to the collaborative and then back to your own stuff.
2: Yeah, I really, I really enjoy it. Even though some days it's like, you know, really difficult because you're not coming up with anything very good. That's why it's good to have a private space to do these things yeah. because you don't want, people to hear some of the stuff that comes out.
1: But I'm curious, when do you know that you've put together an album? Like I don't, from what I know about your process, you don't set out to write a whole collection. You, you write your songs and then when you feel you have an album's worth, is that when you begin putting it together?
2: Yeah, basically. Um, because I, my albums are pretty eclectic. So I don't, I don't have, I've never had a theme or a concept. I just write, songs that come through me because I'm always happy when that happens Yeah. because I never know if I'm going to ever be able to do it again. At least that's how I feel sometimes. And then when I have a, enough or more than enough, I'll, I, I start, um, I cut little strips of pieces of paper and, and, and move the songs around and to sequence them and look at them in different love sequences. It. And usually I'm pretty good about getting most of it right, like on the first sequence. And then if that looks good, if it looks like this song can lead into that song, et cetera, I'll I'll say, okay, uh, let's make an album cover.
1: I mean, the opening song on the Day by Day record is astonishing to me. Um, It's Simple Man. You're someone who sang harmonies with Crosby, Stills and Nash on Southern Cross and, and on Wasted on the Way. And I was listening to the song over the weekend and I got all choked up because I just thought, oh, my God, it sounds just like something that David and Graham and Stephen... Would do. I I understand you composed it in Hawaii. It's astonishing how this song could fit in with their repertoire.
2: Most—that's where I started it, and it took a while to to finish it out. I did a lot of it in in Hawaii in in, on Kauai. What happened was I started coming up with this idea, and I I I liked it, and I said, "This sounds so csn (laughs) and I thought, you know, I'm why not treat it that way? Why fight it? Just do it, you know. And so um, for the remainder of composing time that I spent composing that song, I wrote it thinking that way, that every everything's gonna be in harmony when every word. Can you hear that in your head while yes. you compose three part harmony? Can you hear that three part harmony in your head? Yeah, I've always been able to do that. Has Graham heard the song? I actually sent it to him before the album was released. I sent it to him and I said, Here's something I want you to hear. And uh, he, I can't remember exactly what he wrote back, but he, he was very positive. He, he really liked it. And then I wrote back, I've learned from the best. <laughs> um, Lindsey Buckingham
1: plays, uh, plays guitar on that song. How did that come to pass? I, I know you first met him when he was still just Buckingham and Nicks back in the day, right?
2: Yeah, I, I actually, when I was in Poco, we did a, two or three shows with uh, Buckingham Knicks, and And that, that's when I first met them. We aren't close, but we're very friendly. We always, uh, if we, uh, if one or the other texts or whatever, um, we always get back to each other. And we have, we have similar roots. Like uh, I I uh, started strumming and singing and learning from the folk era and uh, specifically not just the Kingston Trio, but the Kingston Trio, there was, you know, there was a big folk group back then, way back then, you know, (laughs) and uh, he did the same thing. When I found that out, we had a lot to talk about. Um, I just called him up and said, are you, can you come over and play on this song? And, And he came right over really. And we, we had a great day. He played a, when I played acoustic and he'd played another acoustic and played and then brought his, his old Fender that's been with him forever. Although you don't think of Lindsay as a Fender guy, <laughs> but he's had this guitar forever. And, and uh, we spent a really nice day together.
1: Is that how it works when you want to have a guest player on one of your records? You just, you'll just pick up the phone or, or text? Because on, on Grinding Stone, you have Jackson Brown and John Fogarty doing harmonies with you, and it's astonishing. And I'm just like, how does this
2: come about? Yeah. I texted them. (laughs) I texted, uh, uh, Jackson and I have, well, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, and we even did a duet on a song for a movie years ago. What was that? It it was at Everly Brothers, uh, Let It Be Me, the song Let It Be Me. Yeah. What movie? Well, it was a movie that didn't... I can't believe I didn't know this. Well, it didn't, it didn't, there wasn't a lot of noise around this movie. It was called, it was called, uh, don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. 1991, <laughs> I think. Yeah. You know that yes,
1: movie. Yes, I, I, I mean, I had cable when I was a kid, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. and um, so that's the first time we actually did something together. We did an Everly, covered an Everly Brothers uh, song. Anyway, and I called him up and or texted him. We made arrangements. They couldn't come on the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I did the same with John. I've known John, not well, but. I'm from Sacramento, and my first band was from Sacramento, and mm-hmm. uh we played a lot of the same shows when the Creedence Clearwater used to be called the Gollywogs. oh my God, and they wore furry hats and you know had costumes and we, my band was in in suits and we actually I actually have a poster of us uh playing together on the same bill <laughs> so uh so we go back uh, we played the, a lot of the same venues way back when and I started. Uh, talking with John, I ran into him at a mall a few years ago in a mall. he's <laughs> like the nicest guy on he's earth. He's really I nice. And he came up to me. I didn't see him. He came up to me and we started talking, we exchanged phone numbers. And so I asked him then without having a song, would you ever be uh, interested in helping me out on any of my solo stuff? And he said, yeah.
1: And so, but, but this comes back to me asking about hearing this stuff in your head. Did you, you, you worked on Grinding Stone? Did you just think, oh, Jackson Brown and John Fogarty, they would sound great in three-part harmony?
2: What I thought about that, this song, is, is it's, it's, it should be more crude. I don't want it to be really smooth, doubled voices. I yeah. want, and I want really distinctly different voices. I sang all the parts as a guide, but it, it, was, too, it was too pretty. Of course. You know, I wanted it to be cruder. So um
1: I mean that song sounds like a party. That, I mean you've got accordion on that. It sounds like you walked into the, the band having a party. It's well, just Well, it's
2: when you mentioned that because I the band is one of my favorite bands ever. Me too. And when I started writing that, I thought of the band that, that I want to do band-ish, you know. Glenn used to call it modeling a song I after love something it. I, else. I heard it
1: and I thought it's so Garth Hudson.
2: And there's no and there's no um there's only an acoustic guitar. The only thing missing that would have made it the band is an electric guitar, but I d- didn't call for it, you know, and I wasn't trying to be the band. I just, I just wanted to sort of take the, them as inspiration.
1: Now, listen, I promise I'm going to ask questions about the Eagles tour. I promise. But I I want to talk about your record more um, because the heartbeat seems like a very personal song. Is that an actual physical human heartbeat we hear during the track?
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. That's my wife's heart. That is your wife. Yeah. And, uh, I had trouble trying to record it. How did you record it? Well, I got I got a real... Oh, first of all, I have to tell you that I kept saying, I want to record your heartbeat. There's spaces in this song for that, and I don't know if it's going to be really hokey or if it'll work, but I want I wanted to be your heartbeat. The song is to her, and, and how long we've been together, which is a long time.
1: Does she get a percussion credit
2: on the record? Uh, yeah, no, she got a heartbeat credit.
1: <laughs> did you have to speed up her heartbeat to make it fit the time?
2: Well, um, I... I do have some stairs in the studio and it was a little too slow and I had her walk up and down a couple of times. <laughs> You're lying. but No, I'm not. No, really, <laughs> no, really. and um, so I tried it with a, a regular stethoscope and it was, just didn't transfer, but I, I, I had, uh, had recently met a nurse who, had, who uh, said I, I can get a hold of a digital uh, stethoscope. I need it anyway, she said, because I'm taking care of my mother and she was a nurse and she wanted to have it anyway. So she got that and I borrowed it and it, we, it comes across as a waveform. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's how we did that. So yes, physical, it's, real thing.
1: And it's a beautiful song. Thanks. Um, I, I heard you once say that you enjoy songwriting, but sometimes it's, it's painful for you. <laughs> and that makes me think of the song, Mr. X, which sounds like you sharing quite a bit about the struggles you may have had with negative self-talk.
2: Well, yeah, I think we all have that. We all have. Uh, I, I can I can talk about this now because there's a movie about the shrink. I got all this information from his name's Phil Stutz. It's it's out oh, on. Yeah. It's called. It is a, a doc documentary called Stutz yes. now, and it's done by Jonah Hill. And anyway, um, he always I've been going to him for years, and and my wife, he's he's great. He's comes. He does. Psychiatry on a sort of a spiritual level, yes. and gives you a bunch of tools to deal with things. And he always talked about part X, which is which is anything negative. Oh, I can't do that. Uh, I'll do it later. Uh, <laughs> I'm not worthy. Uh, I don't think yep. I can do this. I'm not good. enough. That kind of BS, you know. Yeah. So I just, I thought I'd, I'd I'd write about that because I I have my share of that stuff too. It's like the de- the devil on one shoulder that's whispering into your ear. <laughs> yeah. Trying to. To bump the angel off your other shoulder,
1: well, yeah, but in this case, the devil, the evil is some someone telling you that you can't. not yeah. that you should do bad things, but that you can't do good things
2: right. And so that I wrote about that, but I didn't like I didn't like the sound of part X, so I called him I called it Mr. X. And it's not necessarily about songwriting, although yeah. it could be because some days you, you know, you just don't have it. But I believe you have to go through the motions and get through through the days where you're stalled and you can't quite come up with stuff you have to do that to get to the good stuff
1: henry miller used to say when you can't write you can work
2: yeah that that's that's exactly right we're going
1: to take a very quick break we'll be right back this is progress I'm John Feigel saying this serious XM progress. You know, you've played with everyone and you've played on every record. Just we could do a whole hour on just the times you've guessed it on Toto's Africa and Jar's of Clay, everything in between. I just found out that you and Randy Meisner, who you replaced in Two Bands, sang back up on uh, on Richard Marx for his Don't, don't mean nothing. You toured with Jimmy Buffett, of course, and with Ringo Starr. And my producer wanted to ask about this, because you sang backing vocals on three different Steely Dan albums, on Pretzel Logic and The Royal Scam and Aja. I have to ask, what's the experience like being in studio with those guys and being part of that particular creative process?
2: It was thrilling. It was great and crazy. It was... um, I had met their producer on a different project. I had met his name Gary Katz, the producer of those older Steely Dan albums. I hadn't met him, I think at ABC Records, doesn't matter where, but I when I parted from saying hello, nice to meet you, I said, if you ever need any vocal help, I'm I'm available. And um it worked. He tried me on another more obscure album and and then he told Donald uh, and Walter about me and they had me come in and, and and sing, they thought probably just on one song, which was Ricky, don't lose that number, mm. and they liked it, and they called me back time and time again. And the process was, I thought that I was uh, picky, and that I was sort of OCD with my, you know, anal, you know, yeah. trying to uh, to get everything as perfect as possible. But it was nothing, or the, I could say that about the Eagles too. But um, this was before the Eagles. And uh, they really worked me, but I was enjoyed the the entire time because I always agreed with them, except Mm. for once. I was going over and over this vocal part, and Donald would keep saying, "One more, really close." And when I finally I did this one more take, and I went like, "That's it," and he said, "That was great. That was great. One more time." (laughs) (laughs) So, and I didn't mind at all because I I was thrilled to do it, and that's like one of the gold feathers in my cap to have, to have been able to work with them back then
1: one of the highlights of uh, ringo star's second ever all-star tour was um you joining the band and really just bringing the whole show to another level with your rendition of I can't tell you why. I, I've always wondered what that process was like going into an ensemble like that, where everyone's bringing in their own songs, and it, you're, it, it's all hits. How does the set list get formed?
2: Yeah, I was I was wondering <laughs> about that before we had our first rehearsal too. Everybody was given three or four songs by each artist, so in order to to be on top of things, to kind of had to learn all of them, <laughs> <laughs> including some stuff I actually honestly had never heard. Like there was a couple of uh, um, Dave uh, Dave Edmonds, Dave and... Edmonds songs that I hadn't heard.
1: I mean, this band, for those listening, I mean, Todd Rundgren, Joe Walsh, it, it was just a, a, a crazy lineup of art. Mm-hmm. Nils Lofgren, it was great. Burton, Burton, Burton Cummings. Cummings.
2: Yeah, um, so when we went in, we kind of sifted those out with each artist and I was thrilled to be there with Todd too. Cause that's when I really met him. He's become, he's become a friend of mine since then. It was a lot of work and a lot of fun. And, uh, I, I can tell you uh, something that's not really related to set list we were yeah. sitting down after the first rehearsal, everybody together. And Ringo says, look, you can think of what you want to ask me if you have any Beatles questions, but I'm going to only answer two of them. Think of your two <laughs> questions and then I want to like put that to rest.
1: That's fascinating because I can only imagine how sick he must be of them. And, and it makes me think about the Eagles questions that you have to handle. I mean, I have i don't think I've seen an interview with you in the last couple of years where where a person hasn't asked you to open up your heart and share your pain about the loss of Glenn Frey. Uh, you know, I don't want to ask you about that, but I, I do want to ask you about the, the grace you show in these interviews because it seems like... You are in the position Ringo is, where people just want to have a piece of you.
2: Well, luckily, I'm not Ringo because he can't go anywhere. Yeah. I get, you know, I, I get uh, I get a little bit of my ego fed sometimes. One time, my, my son, when he was really small, he was about four years old, I took him to the market with me and somebody came up to me all excited because they recognized me and wanted to talk for a minute and take a picture or whatever. and and I, I did that, and then I went shopping. My son pulled on my shirt sleeve and, and said, Daddy, are, are you famous? <laughs> and I said, I'm famous to some people, which is so true. Yeah. You know? Sure. So uh, I don't have that uh, stigma, you know, of, of not being able. I, I can blend in anywhere. And I can't remember the last part of that question. Oh, just, you know,
1: the, the kind of questions that you have to face all the time. In, in Listen, like this.
2: I, I'm, I'm, I'm one lucky, fortunate person, and I know it. So I, I'm not going to uh, pretend otherwise. So if anybody uh, likes anything I do or recognizes me for this or that, this and that, everybody likes a pat on the back, you know. And and I'm grateful for it, you know. Yeah. And I really am. I don't mean to sound like sappy. Not at all. I, but I don't. You know, I. No assholes allowed in my head, you know?
1: (laughs) That's a lot of practice. It takes a while to get there.
2: Well, I don't know. We just, you know, we're all, we're all just people,
1: you know? Do you feel that Poco has gotten their due as pioneers of, I guess, what we call country rock? Do you feel that the band has gotten all the notice they deserve?
2: Um, in some ways, no, and in other ways, you know, when people talk about Poco and the Burrito Brothers and the Birds and all bands like that as being pioneers. I, I suppose they were pioneers in some ways, but country rock goes way back. You know, yeah, the Everly Brothers, sure Conway Twitty. You know, in, in you know yeah. he was on the pop charts and he was Stone Country. Yeah, Elvis comes from country roots and country and black roots. Yeah, and so but as far as if my career if everything kind of stopped like 20 years ago, I would have been, I would have been fine. Mm. Uh, Fortunately, that it hasn't stopped yet. And in fact, I don't, as long as I can keep my health, I'm going to do this for as long as I can. I feel like I'm getting better as a songwriter and, uh, and uh, uh, my abilities to make good records. Yeah. I, uh, I see no reason to stop.
1: When you first joined, the Eagles, I know it was during the, the Hotel California tour in, in 77, um, and you'd already worked with, with Glenn and, and Don Henley before, I know, but you were already working on I Can't Tell You Why. That song was written before you joined the band, right?
2: It was partially written. Okay. So when I got together with them one night, they, they wanted to know if I had songs to play for They wanted me to be, they want, as the new guy, they wanted me to, to have a, be the lead singer on, on at least a song. And I played them some. I don't remember the other songs. I, I played them some tunes, and I played them a couple pieces, and I played them that piece, uh, and they went like, "That's the one, that's the one. Let's let's work on that. Let's let's, let's do that song and, and, and work on that one." And You're I was right. happy because because it wasn't it wasn't con- country. It wasn't. Uh, it was more R and B, uh, and I I liked the idea of that.
1: In recent years, I know the Eagles have done the full album of Hotel California on tours. That must be interesting for you as someone who was a fan of the album and then played on the original tour, and now you're playing on it every night. It seems like those songs must feel like they're yours after a while.
2: Well, I have great respect for all those tunes. Uh, I was rehearsing as the new guy in the band when they turned on the TV to to see the Grammys that night that they won whatever it was best album or best record i can't mm-hmm. remember and uh now that i've been part of the band for so so long i i don't i really see it still as is don and glenn and joe's more than anything but i'm happy happy to be a part of it more than happy to be a part of
1: it when you guys got back together for the the hell freezes over record i was a vj at vh1 and we played the hell out of the Love Will Keep Us Alive single. Mm. And I'm always curious, you know, is there a tension in trying to do more of the more recent songs as part of the Eagles set list? I know you guys released an album in 2007, but you don't play too much off of that one live now. Is, is it frustrating? Do you do you feel a desire in that ensemble to get more of the new stuff out?
2: We did play a bunch of those songs. When we, sure. first, when we first started... Um, Uh, working that album and going on tour after after a long road out of eden came out we i think we had seven tunes from that album and now we have none of them yeah we we don't do any of them and it it was it became really obvious that people weren't interested in hearing it It, nearly as much as is the the older stuff it was kind of dictated by crowd response. Really, I yeah. Guess for
1: venues of that size, you I mean, have we to.
2: got good responses, but it wasn't like I mean, I see people transformed out there. I see people go into other worlds. I see people cry every sure. night. I yeah. see I see people dancing, in free abandon because they can't do anything else. You know, it's really something. It's really, it's really a great thing to experience, and that's what keeps the older stuff fresh. You're right. is, the, is, 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 is this, this huge response we get on all different levels.
1: Honestly, the stuff you're doing now is so beautiful. I don't really care if the Eagles does another studio record or not.
2: Well, that's good. Because <laughs> 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 I highly doubt that that will happen. I, I didn't
1: think you guys would do a tour again, so it's, it's lovely. I do have a couple of really quick questions from SiriusXM fans. Can I throw a few of sure. them at you really quick? Mm-hmm. Are there any songs you wrote the Eagles didn't record that you wish they did?
2: Yeah, there have been, been a couple of songs that, that I thought could have been Eagle songs that eventually got turned down. I say turned down, it sounds really cold, but that's, that's what happened. There's a song off the, uh, my album called Expando called Friday Night mm-hmm. that I, I thought, I thought that, would, that was a really probable one, but uh, uh, I was wrong about that. So I just put it in my hip pocket and put it on my own album.
1: Is it true that David, uh, Crosby didn't sing on Southern cross and that it's really a Nash stills and Schmidt song?
2: Well, there's a lot of singers on that. Okay. <laughs> it's not just me. Uh, and I don't think Crosby was on that. The one that, the one that is, that is Nash Stills, Schmidt blatantly. So is, mm-hmm. is the song called wasted on the way. Yes. I, uh, and Graham asked me to sing the high part <laughs> and he's all, he's always been the high singer. And, uh, in that
1: group, uh, you harmonized with Cros and Wasted on the Way and you harmonized with Bob Seger in Fire Lake. Who was more fun? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I, I can't. I, I'd say it was a draw. I sang on a lot of records in my career and I, I always really, have really enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: And the number one question we got from people was, why can't you tell us why? But I'm not going to
2: bother you with that. Thank you so much. Uh,
1: you're most welcome.
2: What is going to be <laughs> I next? still can't tell you. So
1: <laughs> You're you're going on the road now with the Eagles tour. What do you want to do next? Will there be more uh, new songs from you? And and do you still want to tour and get some of these songs from day by day out in front of crowds?
2: Yeah. The only reason I haven't done that is because the Eagles keep going yeah. and, and uh, there's not enough time in between. Like, for instance, we have two legs coming up. Yeah. And I keep asking, are we doing stuff after that? And I suspect we will, but I don't know, which means I can't, I can't uh, book anything for myself. But I didn't start touring on my own as a solo artist until I was sixty years old. And uh, and uh, and <laughs> crazy kid with a dream. Yeah, that's what's cool is, is that like I'm I'm actually getting better at what I do, and I'm enjoying it more. And uh, I think i you know, I, think I like I said, I'm getting better at least in my own head. And if that's the only place it is, fine. It keeps me happy. And uh, so rather than having a heyday back then, back when, you know, I, I feel like, like it's, it's coming to me now. And it's really great being this old and having that feeling.
1: Timothy B. Schmidt will be going back on the road with his other combo. The new album is Day by Day. I have played it for my friends and Everyone's shocked at how amazing and gorgeous it is. I can't wait to hear the next record, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. We'll be right back. Uh, by now, you've heard of Pokerface, NBC Peacock's new Mystery of the Week series created, executive produced and often written and directed by Ryan Johnson. He of Brick and Looper and uh, indie uh, favorite The Last Jedi, Knives Out and Glass Onion. Now, Mr. <laughs> Johnson somehow find time to create a series grounded in a classic detective show format with the mighty Natasha Leon of Russian Doll. And Slums of Beverly Hills, and Everyone Says I Love You, and Too Many Credits to Name, uh, she found time to co produce and star and write and direct for the show as well. She plays Charlie Kale, who is not the detective but can solve mysteries based on her unique power to always know when someone is lying. This throws her into mystery solving mode every week. The show and its astonishing cast of guest stars has premiered on Peacock to a world that didn't know how badly we needed it. Ryan Johnson, Natasha Leone, thank you both, and welcome to Sirius XM.
4: Yeah. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Um, you know, I guess my
1: obvious question is, how the hell do the two of you do this with scheduling? How how does it work with the scheduling for both of you? Doesn't
4: work. It doesn't work at all. <laughs> it's it's a, uh, yeah. You just kind of. I mean, what are you going to do? You fit the tomato into the matchbox is what yeah. you do. Yeah. You and fit it's the messy. Bit, the it's, potato into the box. Yeah. Exactly.
5: And but we really committed it nice big chunk of time, but you are still uh, finishing Glass Onion.
4: I was doing post-production on Glass Onion while we were doing this. So I directed three of the episodes and I was in the whole writer's room but i was splitting my time like i'd spend half the day in the writer's room and then get a couple of hours in the edit for glass onion so i was really going back and forth it was a lot yeah
5: and i was doing full russian doll you you were putting out russian doll
4: like when we were shooting like the first week of poker face yeah yeah it was kind of insane man
1: can i ask a question about the overlap really tiny but in the scene in the bathtub in yeah. Glass Onion, yeah. where Benoit's playing, I think it's Among Us, yeah. with Kareem and mm-hmm. Sondheim and Angela and you. You're in costume for this show in Knives Out, are you not? That's yeah. that's you Go
5: on, looking like
1: you were in the
4: tra- Yeah, she was in her trailer. I was just like, hey, do this. <laughs> and she was. So I, I like the notion that in the world of Glass Onion, Blanc is friends with Natasha, who is currently <laughs> shooting a show called Poker Face. Playing Charlie Kale, that's like, it's, that's my story. I'm it bends to it. in on
5: itself. Yeah. It's a
4: great way
1: to shoot down any potential obnoxious crossover questions, Exactly. I, I think. Kill
4: them. Kill them dead. And,
5: uh, what's worse is it was my lunch break. <laughs> I've decided I'm going to be this guy in the interview. <laughs> what I
1: what I'm love the most about the show, I think, beyond, you know, obviously how fun the show is, but that you've also sort of stimulated a national dialogue about format. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people who don't normally think about format in their detective shows are now exploring the difference between the Agatha Christie format and the uh, Columbo style format.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different things to it, and you know, there's because so this is a Columbo style thing of how catch him, where we show you the killer, we show you the murder at the beginning, and it's all a chess match match between Charlie Natasha's character and the killer. How is she going to catch him? Um, the bigger format thing that that ended up being like when we were first pitching the show that we got lots of blank stares back about it's less about the form of the mystery it's more that this show is really designed to be a true episodic show um they are the episodes are self-contained the mystery begins And concludes and is finished at the end of each hour-long episode. You get a full meal. And with the exception of the pilot and the last couple episodes, you can kind of watch them in any order. Yes, And serialized storytelling has just – it's something that has the gravity of a thousand suns right now because there's so much good – there's so many good versions of it. And it was kind of a big risk for Peacock. Like so many streamers were like, (laughs) wait a minute, without the continuing story, what's her arc? What's the (laughs) story? Why do people keep clicking? And I just remember this is what TV was when I was growing up as a kid. All of it, Quantum Leap and The Incredible Hulk and The A-Team and you know Magnum PI. All of these shows were in this format. And I tuned in every single day watching reruns because I wanted to come back and Hang out with these people again and have this fun kind of so I don't know that for me format wise was actually more the um, more the big swing, I guess, and the thing that I really missed.
1: I love that we're in the golden age of serialized drama. And um, it's a pleasure to behold these massive 40 hour maxi movies that used to be called miniseries. But in this case, what's fun is that the audience always knows more than the protagonist. And, of course, the protagonist always has to enter act, too. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, for the two of you, did that bring up any kind of writing challenges? I mean, we've heard stories, you know, Battlestar Galactica, Justified, series that want to be serialized, but the network has at times put pressure to have free standalone episodes.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that a different I kind of know discipline? They
5: were going through that. Oh, some shows have. Yeah. this moment. I know, I just mean specific to... Uh, Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica, yeah.
1: they, yeah. they yeah. really were pressured by sci-fi to have episodes that you could just watch and not have to know what it links to.
5: Well, that's
4: because that, that was created still at the end of the cusp of uh, they can basically sell the shows and put them in syndication, syndication. Oh. which just doesn't exist. It <laughs> the doesn't 20th exist. century, yes. Yeah, so now it, it's entirely molded by the streaming mode of getting you to click watch next. And Although, I, think that's why
5: I mean, it's both. I mean, yeah. for... Let's not get into the streaming wars, but just to say that I do think certain things are also still thriving in syndication internationally because they're episodic. It's just that it doesn't really suit the streaming model financially
4: although i way. i though would make the argument and i did when we were pitching it that you look outside of this genre you look at the success of sitcoms on yeah. streaming models that to me is almost the bigger model for why this kind of episodic storytelling yes it still will get people watching um or anthology anthology series yeah absolutely um uh, so yeah I, yeah, I don't know. I, to me, it, it just it makes sense. Much
1: has been made about the fact that you are both very much collaborators on the creation and, and evolution of the piece, but I'm really curious, what was the first pitch to you, Natasha? Was it about the character's ability to spot a liar? Was that the first solid nugget you hung on to, or was it this overall idea of the detective series?
5: I think it was more, you know, knowing how much Ryan genuinely loves this genre and how good you are at actually doing it correctly. That's what made it feel immediately so fun. And we talked a lot about The Long Goodbye, the Altman movie, obviously. I love that Elliot Gould performance so much as Philip Marlowe, that literally uh, Oatmeal, the cat in Russian Doll, I wrote that way because he has a cat in there. You know, that's what he's doing at the telly and (laughs) stuff. So we would talk about this kind of, Thing, but you know, it's um, we would talk about so many things. We talk about California Split, we talk about mm. you know Gene Heckman, uh, not as Popeye Doyle, but you know, his night moves era. Like, we would have these kind of oh, conversations. you reference
1: Harry Call in the second episode, I think, yeah, right? and,
5: <laughs> yes. And I, I think in general, we just started having fun riffing, discovering that we had a shared language that is sort of our happy place. I think we realize that we both are you know, um, love puzzles, but come at it in such different ways in a way. Like we laugh a lot about like Ryan has such a beautiful, uh, structure brain and I'm really like, you know, a melting clock and that's the the joy of kind of combining that for both of us, because we have such a shared, um, sort of like our, as we cross reference, there's kind of the Venn diagram of it has so many like meeting points of, Fellini Fosse, you know, Altman and then but he's bringing in like all of this kind of sort of almost a Hitchcock for lack of a better term that is yes. not something that I really speak in but is so fun for us to kind of play in together cuz it's almost it's almost like a mutual um respect is very more than anything it feels to me almost like I always picture um you know, musicians in the seventies kind of coming together and be like, "Hey, let's let's play on this thing together yeah. or something." And of course, there's all those. We're the traveling Welburys. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to tell you in a nutshell. Yeah. And you look back and you're like, you see those big dudes That's one of my favorite memes. This is what you call a tangent now. No, I get but it. Why are those guys like forty in those photos? And how disturbing is it? Because
1: they they're all so young ancient. now. Yeah, oh my God. I know yeah. Roy was the old man at fifty one. I think.
5: Well, moly moly. for me, I sort of I realized that we're like oh we're kind of too like you know middle-aged makers and stuff that really wanted to kind of party in the language we party in, which is sort of Yacht Rock. Uh, And that's how we got here.
1: Okay, first off, Traveling Wilbur's is not Yacht Rock. I'll fight you on that. But secondly, I like this whole... Because I see Mr. Johnson here. You're George Harrison and Jeff Lynn. You're the one who's putting this whole thing together. And you're Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, and Roy Orbison being pulled along and (laughs) making the music.
5: Sort of, but like, the point is when you ask the question of like where did the show come from or at one point did you know like... How do you not join in well, he, on that?
1: He pitched you the idea of you know sleuth. I get that. But did he pitch you the idea that she has this superhero power to spot a lie before he pitched you the idea that it was going to be like a Columbo procedure?
5: I'll be honest. They were all bonuses. He was sort of talking and I was eating french fries. We were having steak free, I knew he was paying. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, that'll be great. Uh, well, cause, cause- no, I mean, I'm kidding. But on some level, the the the, the deeper truth there is when... You know, sort of uh, not to be too arty about it, but when like an artist is inspired like that, it's kind of you you keep you contribute to kind of like stoking the fire as opposed to pulling something apart because it's everything is execution. You know what I mean? Like nothing is an idea. So in a vacuum, it's like uh, kind of okay. And she can tell somebody's lying and it's sort of going to be the case of the week. You know, fine. Or you're so great in Russian Doll. What if it's it's all these sort of like hypothetical right. neutrals, and that's really the joy of collaboration. Is you kind of you just sort of keep the energy in the balloon, you keep the air in the balloon, and then six months later, when all of a sudden, you know, he emailed me the script. It's like, ha ha! This is what we this is yeah. what we were actually talking about, and it sort of outshines anything. You could have imagined. We could talk about Susan Terrell and uh, Stacey Keach and Fat City as much as we want, but ultimately <laughs> that's where the rubber meets the road, and that's what you know where you really see the workaholic sort of beauty quality of Ryan.
1: Oh yeah, but it's but that, that again is traveling Wilburys too, to me, if you'll pardon me abusing your metaphor, because it's really all about joy. Mm -hmm. There's darkness and murder and there's politics and there's class and there's poverty and everything is touched on in this like in some of your best scripts. But it is pure fun. It is a show that you can watch with your parents or with your kids while not pretending we live in this world where the darkness doesn't exist. It is a joyful show and it is a show that really seems to love people. And I have to say what a pleasure it is watching you, Natasha, do this character where you're not a cynic I mean she is just she just is a big open hearted person and yet she's still every inch a Natasha Leon character
5: yeah you know I often think of uh, Harvey Keitel in the piano um, mm-hmm. no, I'm just kidding uh, but I do actually think about it all the time I think about
1: that performance all the time <laughs> yeah I just that was in the naked Harvey period after Battle that Lieutenant. was the naked Harvey yeah it yeah. was, was, yeah. was quite a two the, years the, the we had D there years, yeah, yeah.
5: Um, but I guess what I mean by that is it's It's funny that, um, I don't know, sometimes when we think of uh, uh, like, oh, you know, when uh, people have, I came up on sort of very, I think, 70s New York actors. Mind you, I'm, you know, hardly born yet, but I'm watching them as throwbacks because I'm out of the country. We'd fled for tax reasons. I won't get into it. Anyway, (laughs) I'm stuck there with, you know, Rocky and Scarface and and Goodfellas and even like, I remember like Kevin Kline and A Fish Called Wanda for some reason, even though I guess that's 80s. Uh, is it? Maybe 88? it's yeah. something. Uh, and I loved, um, I remember I also really loved as a kid, uh, like Betty Davis, and I really loved, for some reason, we had a copy of Jessica Lang Francis. I pulled a lot from that. That's, uh, that's a fun and, movie. Uh, but I bring it up just to say that it's funny that so many of those sort of New York quintessential tough guys uh, that I think in many ways I sort of like stole a person from, they were allowed to kind of play all over the range once upon a time of yeah we know but we kind of like that sort of like Pacino also still has an accent even though he's sort of British in this one or something <laughs> they, those, those guys meaning Harvey Keitel on the piano were given more free reign yes. to we wanted to see them spread their wings even if so it's a a long way of saying that I feel like that's sort of uh, the gift of what was going on with us uh, with, you know with with Ryan and this was you know when you say it's sort of like a a character like that yes but also it's completely unlike anything that I'd been Correct. able to do. And in many ways, you know, if a sort of tough guy shtick is sort of about being, um, you know, like covering up a sort of like soft heart or all the sort of um, uh, whatever um, tropes of, about it, in many ways that, that was sort of like the freedom that I felt in um, Ryan as a director in many ways was like the the safety of that, of being like, you know, even without some of these games, yes. I think I think it can still live. Uh, yeah. And so it's exciting to hear that people are having that experience. So,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, you know, let me ask you about lying then because I, I love that this is a show about... Pathological, but also about <laughs> casual lying. It's the casual lies consistently that doom these perpetrators. That's where you tend to catch them. And as you point out, your character knows nothing about the truth. She just knows how to spot a lie. What's the difference between lying and bullshitting. That's a question I've been grappling with since politically 2015. <laughs> but it seems like there's more than one kind of lie and the show really goes quite deeply into why people do it and how casually it can be done.
5: Rihanna?
4: <laughs> oh, you you passed the big ones to me. Yeah. I see. I see what's up. Uh, well, I mean...
1: It's a beautiful it's, superpower.
4: Yeah. It, it, well, that's the thing. I, I, I think that And to me, this is why, and sometimes when I talk about writing, I can talk about it in ways that seem very kind of mechanical. I have kind of a mechanical pu- puzzle-solving brain when I approach writing. And so I can talk about structure. I can talk about with the notion of lies, like what the purpose that serves in terms of her character, <laughs> not being, not, not philosophical. Like, no, just that's what I do, I do relax. And bolts. I know, yeah, yeah, nuts and bolts. Like, like the, she's not a cop. And so this gives her kind of like a way in something she's specifically good at that draws her in. Um, what I love though is that Yes, all of that stuff, and that to me then allows us to serve because we did start out in the writers' room we we spent like a few days just philosophically talking about what you're talking about just exactly talking about the nature of lying, the morality of it, the notion of um, you know, we had kind of the big picture conversations, and then all that stuff. Hung out in the back of our brains while we were working out the mechanics of how of of each of these things, and it seeps in there, you know. So yeah, I mean, to me, and having just also made, I mean, Glass Onion for me was very much about everything I'd kind of been soaking up since 2016, and the notion of big dumb lies being yeah. sup- so big, obvious dumb lies being supported by people who gain from them, and um, uh, so. I don't know. All of that, it, it all goes into the stew, and then and then you take the stew and you make an Erector set out of it. I mean, I, that's.
5: I mean, not to be this guy for the entire interview, but a weigh-in for character-wise was for me very much that John Lennon quote of "Just give me some truth." You know, yeah. like mm. I loved that, and and to speak to, you know, um, whatever elections and and Twitter in these past years, I, I loved that about. Charlie and what we were crafting together and that just as a, you know, the uh, the North Star for a human being yes, who conceivably, you know, in success we would, you know, we could be old people sort of like you know, throwing out another one being like, oh, we've got a a year off. I guess we're not so much and so maybe we re- resurrect the old pokey face, you know, um, <laughs> and that she would still be like... You know, uh, I can't wait for the
1: 2045 reboot. Yeah, now. the 2045
5: yeah. reboot. Wait you mean reboot?
1: That's gonna that's gonna be season
0: still be 18. Yeah. are you kidding
5: and, me? a uh, hip replacement, but also <laughs> bullshit. So listen, uh, I can tell the insurance yeah, guy's lying to me. I, I knew it uh, the moment he. And but I love that idea of just somebody who just, just kind of at least clocks it moment to moment and knows it sort of as fact or, or yes. fiction. You know, even if. And that it's just sort of, you know, like a a nose for puzzles of like, well, now that I know it, I guess, ah, nuts, I got to see this thing through to the finish line because this person that is uh, just a human being, that's all they did as far as entering my life or interests. All they did was just, you know, exist, which means basic human rights and they shouldn't go down for this thing. And well, I know that that's, that was a lie, so I'm going to go chase that over here. Right. You know, like that is such a beautiful way to kind of um, externalize and, like, make into sort of something, I don't know, a practical application of, like, what we've all been living with, you know, and yeah. as opposed to kind of like what Ryan has in the pilot of, well, I, t- I tweeted about it, so I did something, you know? It's kind of, mm-hmm. that's such a scene through that lens. Right. Uh,
1: Activism now means click, 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 send, and yeah, I've Yeah, she's
5: a real by circumstance like you know get your hands dirty ah well I guess I better tie up this murder so that this wrong person doesn't go away because I know this is a a liar
1: yeah but but I get that but unlike Holmes or Columbo or even Benoit Blanc she's not getting paid like she's not a professional detective and there's a level of goodness a level of morality not to get too spiritual about it but that I think is in all of your work and I think it's really here and not to sound like a, a a too academic, but I, I love the character because you bring out so much of the masculine and the feminine in her at the same time. I, I keep being struck by how many layers there are to this character and that she has as much Love for humanity as she has toughness mm-hmm. and it's not a detective model I've seen before.
4: Mm. Yeah. And she has skin in the game. I guess that that she cares. So it, this is actually like a good example of something that seems like a structural thing that we do and it leads directly to an emotional and thematic impact in the episode. So the one big, we do, like I said, the, the kind of the Columbo-esque, who catch how Ketchum thing, show the murder, and then we meet the detective. The one difference is, and we do this in every episode, After that first act of seeing the killing, we flash back in time. Exactly. And we meet Charlie before the killing has happened, and we show in every episode there's overlap between her and the setup to the crime. We find out that she's always been on the scene before the crime happened in the first act. She's been around, which allows you to do fun stuff in terms of the where's Waldo of where was she at the whole time. Dead people come back. Totally. And the big thing, though, that that allows us to do, and this is essential because she isn't a cop, is it allows her to form a bond With, We play with this, but most of the times with the victim, sometimes with someone who's – sometimes with the killer. Sometimes it allows her to have an actual connection with the people who are involved. So she has skin in the game. There's a beautiful episode – um, that's airing on Thursday, actually, That uh, called The Time and the Monkey, that um, it's Judith Light mm-hmm. uh, and they the, uh Mercison, who is, who is they, they play like two like radical ladies who are They're now so in good. their retirement yeah. home. They are so good. And there's a beautiful moment in it where, I won't give any spoilers, but where a character, where Charlie is deeply let down by somebody. And the way Natasha plays it she, you see this open-hearted person deeply wounded by the fact that somebody who she thought was kind of a hero is not what she thought they were. And it's, a de- it's something, again, that's the opposite of hard-boiled, but it's, wa- it's essential to the character of Charlie seeing that she actually has her heart put forward into these things. And that means it's her heart is sometimes going to get broken by these cases also.
1: I mean, so much of your work that it's about genre, I think is also about commenting on the genre brick is as much about noir as it is a noir film mm. uh, Looper is as much about sci-fi and time travel I mean last Jedi speaks for itself mm. and of course you know looking at looking at how you do the best of back at the Christie with uh, the knives out films this really is a completely different kind of storytelling and I'm so glad that you break down the monolith of the mystery because there are so many subgenres to it yeah. at the end of the first episode she smashes her phone that felt like one of the most political acts in the series. Am I mistaken about that? It felt like it was yeah. a very strong symbolic gesture of her to smash her phone and hit the road.
4: That's completely what, to me, the actual launching pad of the first episode is. is the notion of going from fake, doing something about it, to now she's going to be in the world doing something about it. and she's And, and to me, that was something that, I mean as someone who's still way too online. That's something that to me was kind of a challenge to myself and sort yes. of a this is something for all of us to aspire to a little bit, is this is actually going to be the hero we actually need with this which is somebody who breaks their phone, gets in their car, goes out there and starts doing some actual good in the world. It's like an anti McGuffin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And
5: ironically I'm trying to get my screen time up this year. Yeah, you're trying uh, to get those
4: numbers up. I'm trying Rookie to get numbers. Hours. Rookie numbers, man. You gotta get those numbers up. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress.
1: Did you know from the beginning you wanted to write and direct an episode?
5: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's just what I do now. So I don't really understand without like, I guess, I would, of course, if it was a if it was a complete thought already, but just the idea that there is. Um, more likes to it. I mean, I love, uh, I do it so much on Russian doll that it just sort of is organic. And I, I would say that there's been like a real softening era, um, for me over the years, taking you back to this more like spiritual or sort of like the, theological question, almost of sort of as, a, as the years go by, I would say more and more, and that is what I see in a lot of those guys that I sort of like grew up loving probably less so in the women maybe just out of sheer terror of like losing their job or not being appealing or something but often (laughs) the angry punk
1: antihero was very male yeah but
5: just it really like I do think I mean if you look at Peter Falk and of course like in Wings of Desire like that's exactly (laughs) what's going on and I think that you know as I'm growing up I really saw it like in Russian all sort of like this you know it was like sort of like cracking me open in this way that's um but still very tough, but sort of the, the quality of the ideas and stuff were increasingly deeper and deeper as we went of just like exposing more and more sort of truth about human condition. And then here, it, with Charlie, it really became an opportunity to kind of like live more in that pocket, or at least at the the beginning of that pocket and see where she should go, meaning to move from sort of like a, a disconnected shut off person to a more, Like connected person who actually cares about other people is inherently you know um, like yeah a sort of a spiritual softening which in many ways is sort of like a thematic of you know Russian and discovering Alan but here is sort of this entirely different way to do it that's a much more you know actionable like sort of moment to moment and I love that about playing
1: do you know how the series will eventually end
5: no,
4: no. It's not intended to – it's not building towards an ending. You have
1: made out the five-season map.
4: No. I mean, great. Because, it's great. Because the entire purpose of the season is the exact opposite of that. The entire purpose of it is not contained in some big picture where she's eventually going. The entire thing is – This could have – I'm just – what I'm excited about is the notion of the permutations of the different worlds she can dip into, the different types of mysteries she can engage with, the different themes we can work on in each episode because of that, the notion of this is something that I can just see endless potential of – Exploration with every single episode. To me, it's it's the notion of where it ends. You can both
1: see yourself spending many years with these characters.
4: Yeah, you know, I mean, you, yeah, we've uh, we're also both wise enough to know. Let's put the first season out and see how it does first. But yeah, <laughs> yes, but um, I sort of yeah. am
5: looking for an adult adoption by <laughs> Ryan and his wife Karina Longworth. So yeah. I honestly, I was like sort of listening when we were talking about oh, the idea of the show, the show. And yeah. really I was like, so you're telling me that I could be like 60, 65 and hanging out with you guys. And yeah. we'd be talking about movies and stuff together at weird dinners.
1: But that's what I thought watching it. Is she gonna grow into be Ms. Marple in a couple of decades?
5: I, I, I don't know uh, exactly what that means, but well, just as a reminder that I'm listening, I'm now 17, so <laughs> when you're hearing the voice of a, a youth, <laughs> a it's youth you, the sound a of youth, youth. <laughs> there's a sound of two youths two okay? youths Talk over here another... you. <laughs> yeah
1: is doing TV as much fun as you hoped it would be
5: it's a I had a
4: blast I also feel a little bit like when I uh, worked with Frank Oz on the last Jedi and did one scene with a practical puppet yeah and my mind was blown how how the hell did you guys make an entire movie with the muppets made out of bubble i feel like guys people who like people who make tv and that's what they do i now have just exponentially more respect is the amount of work that goes into even just doing 10 episodes of it so far is mind-boggling. So, And that having been said, I had a blast and I love the pace of it. I yeah. love the fact that we have a different movie to make every couple of weeks, basically. And I love... I love that you can't get precious, and you gotta find the quickest path between A and B for every scene, and the problem-solving aspect of that on your feet every single day. I found it really invigorating. Yeah, man, I, I had a really good time. It's uh, such a
1: joy to watch, and yeah. this is the end of the interview where I ask the question on behalf of all the people who are wondering if there's any hope of a Ryan Johnson Star Wars trilogy uh, that was <laughs> announced <laughs> way back in the lost days of 2017. What do you What do you tell people in my position who ask you this question?
4: <laughs> Look right now now my focus is on this and making the next okay, Benoit good Blanc answer. movie. Excellent yeah. answer. Yeah, great, yeah.
1: great. <laughs> Honestly, as someone who's been killed on a police procedural, I was murdered on CSI. Probably. Congratulations. It is, so thank you very much. Yeah. It was such a joy and I can't <laughs> wait to see where you both take this character next.
4: we got to kill you in the Poker Face episode. <laughs> yeah. you got di- to die, man. I'm, I'm available. I'm,
1: right. a, I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I'm already pale enough. You don't have to pay. <laughs> <the white> and, <laughs> I was the first corpse they ever had to darken on CSI. Ryan Johnson and Tash Leone, longtime fan, first-time suck-up, thank you so much for bringing great TV for everybody. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks
5: so much.